Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, March 31st. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, last night, Donald Trump became the first American president in history to face criminal charges as a Manhattan grand jury handed down an indictment that includes more than 30 counts related to business fraud surrounding alleged hush money payments made by Trump to porn actress Stormy Daniels. The former president is expected in court next Tuesday for his arraignment, and he released a statement Thursday evening calling the indictment political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history. We'll talk about that first with Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevan and Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon. And then we'll talk about the rest of the week's news with senior political correspondent at Axios, Josh Kroshauer. So, Tom, a lot of folks thought this wasn't going to happen, or at least it wasn't going to happen so soon. But here it is. What does this mean for Trump? And what does it mean for his bid for the presidency? I'm not sure what it means for his bid for the presidency. I mean, you could certainly argue that that it may strengthen his bid for the presidency. It, it will do what could potentially galvanize people uh, to him who might have been drifting away. It could make some folks who are you know, indifferent toward him, sympathetic toward him. I, I don't think we know the, the full scope of that yet. I do think that it, we have crossed a Rubicon. Um, one that I think has is, is bad for the country and will have ramifications long after Trump is gone. The genie is sort of out of the bottle now, especially given this case in particular, a seven-year-old, you know, civil, uh, you know, agreement, private agreement that he made, and now he's going to be charged. I mean, everybody, again, I'm not a legal expert. I've said this before, but everybody that that I've read finds this case to be, you know, anything from a stretch to dubious to to pathetic, as Jonathan Turley has called it. So I think it's unfortunate that that's, this is where we find ourselves. And I think this is going to kick off a protracted legal battle as Trump's lawyers go back and forth on this. But again, a longer term tit for tat retaliation where I think you're going to, unfortunately, you're going to see, you're going to see this becoming more a, a part of our politics, which is, again, I think a bad thing for the country. It won't, though, in the short term, I guess, have anything to do with his bid for the presidency. He can run uh, even if he's convicted. He can still run. Isn't that right, Carl? He can run, as I said last week. Eugene Debs ran in 1920. He got uh, 3.4% of the vote. He was in federal prison. He was in prison for violating the Espionage Act. Uh, You'd get a Presidential Medal of Freedom today for what he did. He gave a speech advising against registering for the draft. He thought the military draft during World War I was wrong. Gave a speech. They charged him with espionage sedition. He was convicted. That conviction would never hold up today. I would never compare Donald Trump to Gene Debs. And when Trump said this is the worst thing like in history, no, it's it's the second worst is the best you can say. But I want to comment about this, about the case itself for a minute. Tom's talking about these ramifications and I, I don't, I agree with him completely. It's so cynical. There's no, it's not just a weak case, Tom. It, it's not a crime. He didn't have an affair with Stormy Daniels, as the Washington Post says. <laughs> Jen T. Lee had sex with her one time. That's her account. Trump deny that it happened, but let's stipulate that it did happen. When he's starting to run for president, she calls up and she says, I'm going to, she shakes him down. If there's a crime here, it seems to me that that was extortion or blackmail. Uh, he paid the money. Then she decided she got $130,000. Imagine some portion that went to her lawyer. Let's say she got $100,000. Then she decided that wasn't enough. 
Now she has Michael Avenatti as his lawyer. She takes the money, spends it, and then talks anyway. That's fraud, probably in a civil way. But if you got Michael Avenatti as your lawyer, you're going to have trouble staying on the right side of the law. What Donald Trump did, what he's alleged to have done, is pay her hush money, also known legally as a non-disclosure agreement. Under Alvin Bragg's theory of the case, he would have disclosed that non-disclosure agreement in an FEC report because it was amounted to a campaign contribution because the public would look unfavorably upon his affair with Stormy Daniels. This bizarre and dubious theory of law was tried by the federal government against John Edwards uh, years ago, and, and the jury didn't buy it. A, a federal jury rejected that theory of law. It's, it's, if that's the criterion, a candidate spends money so that they'll look better. Well, then, you know, if you get your teeth fixed, is that then you have to disclose that on an FEC report? And if you don't, it's a felony. Even if this was against law, it isn't. It'd be a misdemeanor. He's not being charged with campaign finance violations. He's being charged with fraudulent business practices in New York, which is saying money's used for one thing when it's for another. That doesn't fit this crime. And then the guy bootstraps that on top says, it's in furtherance the that misstatement of another crime, the crime being campaign finance violations, which is a federal law, not a state law. I never voted for Trump. I never would. Um, but 75 million people did. I think they'll all be offended by this. I'm offended by it. And I'm not even, I don't even like the guy. This is like police state stuff. This is like this guy, Alvin Bragg has made the United States look like a third world country. It is, it is outrageous. It is really awful. Well, let, let's do the standard caveat, which we, we don't know what's in the indictment. That's it's sealed at this point, And we're theorizing on the theory of the law that's being applied here. But Tom, you know, one thing we do know is how other Republican candidates who were trying to run against Trump have responded so far. All of them, as far as I can tell, uh, have lined up and said that this is a bad case and that DeSantis even has said that he won't cooperate with any extradition. Does it scramble the field at all, do you think? No. You think this this was baked into the cake at this point? Yeah, sure. And why, and why wouldn't Republicans stand up and denounce this? As Carl said, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an outrage. I mean, it's a total outrage. But Democrats are going to get what they have been thirsting after for seven years. Remember, all the, the walls are closing in on Trump. The walls are closing in on Trump. Now, he's going to show up in New York. He's going to be arraigned on Tuesday. He's going to turn himself in, it looks like. They will get the perp walk, maybe, on camera. They will get a mug shot, um, which I'm sure Donald Trump will be. He's not going to give them what they want. He's going to smile and, you know, give them double thumbs up and... <laughs> You know, I'm not sure they're going to be able to use that the way that they want to. But I just can't say this enough. I mean, I think it sets just a ridiculously bad precedent for this country. And and you know that there will be conservative Republican partisans out there who are going to immediately start plotting retaliation against Joe Biden, against other folks. Tom, could, could they indict Bill Clinton? some Republican prosecutor, because the statute, the the third thing I forgot to mention, the statute of limitations of this has lapsed as well, which is another kind of outrageous thing. Bill Clinton committed perjury when he um, denied knowing Monica Lewinsky during the Paula Corbin Jones sexual harassment suit against him. Now, can a prosecutor say, oh, yeah, we don't care about statute of limitations anymore. We're going to indict President, we're going to indict Bill Clinton criminally. I mean, where does this end? That's the unfortunate part of it. So- we're in uncharted waters, for sure. So the White House is so far, at least uh, as of right now, hasn't responded at all. Do you think they will? And if you're a Democrat, is the proper stance here now to say, oh, well, now we have to wait 
as Eric Swalwell said it, the indictment of a former president is a somber day for America. Oh, yeah. So somber. <laughs> it's also a time to put faith in our judicial right. system. Chuck Schumer said, you know, n- even former presidents aren't above the law and Trump's going right. to avail himself of the legal system and he'll have his day in court and blah, blah, blah. I mean, <laughs> come on. Really? Well, Carl, what do you expect to happen on Tuesday? Before I answer that, <laughs> I think Tom's right. I think president will try to make the most of it. I imagine if this New York prosecutor is this vindictive, I imagine he'll try and make Trump suffer. And maybe, you know, I don't think they could shave his head, but they'll do something dignity. Trump will try and wear his MAGA hat. They'll, they'll try and <laughs> shave his head or put him in pinstripes. It, it, it's a circus. But here, here's the question, though. Tom, Tom gets this. We talked about this briefly last week. Why wouldn't a New York jury convict him? I mean, you, he's going to have all Democrats on the jury. You're going to have the people who voted for Alvin Bragg on that jury. The arguments I'm making that it's beyond the statute of limitations, that it's not a crime, that I don't know what the judge will decide, the trial judge, but those will be matters for appeal. But I fully expect him to be convicted. It's, it's almost like the Democrats are trying to tear the country apart. And I, and I don't understand why. Tom, last thoughts. I think the opposite argument is, you know, it only takes one juror to look at this case in a objective way and say, you know, listen to the arguments that are going to be made as to why this case has no basis. Just takes one. I have faith. I've actually served on a jury. I've been in that room. I've seen jurors who went in there absolutely 100% convinced and then after a sort of sober analysis of the facts, changed their minds um, and ended up voting in a different way. So this is one time I'm not as cynical as Carl. I mean, we it's, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm usually the idealistic Dogs are living ones. together. It's, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> I have more faith in the jury system than Carl Cannon. Well, <laughs> a happy note to leave this go. on. A very strange day in American politics, I will say. Well, Tom, I know you've got to go. Uh, Carl, you're going to stick around, and we're going to be joined in a moment by uh, Josh Crushauer, and we're going to talk about some of the other things that happened this week. Well, on Thursday, President Biden declared March 31st Transgender Day of Visibility, declaring that transgender Americans, quote, shape our nation's souls. House Democrats have introduced what they call the Transgender Bill of Rights, while some nine states have pushed back on the movement, banning or restricting transgender surgeries and therapies for minors, while 18 states have banned transgender student-athletes from competing in women's sports. All of this is happening against the backdrop of this week's mass shooting at a Christian school in Nashville, where the assailant has been identified as transgendered, and the role her gender identity played in the attack remains an open question. Also this week, new national polls show Donald Trump with a growing lead over Governor Ron DeSantis and the rest of the Republican field, and Chicago gets ready for next week's mayoral election. Tom Bevan couldn't join us for this part of the discussion, but we are lucky to have Josh Kraschauer here, who is senior political correspondent at Axios. So, Carl, the politics surrounding the transgender rights movement in America really came into focus this week. Today was supposed to be a day where the White House and congressional Democrats celebrated and advanced uh, transgender rights. But this tragic school shooting, which resulted in the murder of three children and three adults, has certainly changed the political dynamics. What's going on here and how potent do you think this transgender rights issue is, both for the left and the right? Well, Andy, this is going to be the week that we'll look back where transgender issues became like 
uh, abortion did. It's taken a year or two, but abortion was never a partisan issue uh, until the Roe v. Wade, California, where I'm from, the, the primary opponents of a, a liberalizing abortion bill that Governor Ronald Reagan signed were Catholic Democrats. It was an issue that people had strong feelings about it, but it wasn't strictly a uh, Republican and Democratic issue. That be, that changed after Roe v. Wade. It took about three or four years. It took longer than that, but uh, over the next 20 years, really, eventually it became, if you were a Democrat, you had to be pro-choice if you wanted any future in that party. The last nationally prominent Democrat who was uh, pro-life was David Bonnier of Michigan. And this is what's happened because there's nothing specifically about transgender issues that correspond to uh, wanting a lower tax rate or whatever the Democrats' issues are, the Republicans' issues, and all these issues, environment, taxation, other issues. And feminists are split on some of these sub-issues in the transgender rights field, specifically boys competing against girls in youth sports uh, and, and collegiate sports. But now, you know, President Biden has thrown down the gauntlet. These Republican legislatures have done their thing in Kentucky. The Democratic governor vetoed a bill that restricted transgender minor rights that prevented parents from interfering. It's a complicated bill. He was overridden by a supermajority of Republican legislatures. They overrode it. So it's now become a partisan issue. And if you're a Democrat, so I guess you're going to have to express fealty to what's the term of art? Gender affirming care for minors. Uh, and if you're a Republican, you have to oppose bathrooms for, for kids who want to not go in a boy's bathroom. And, and, and because it's a partisan issue, it's become one, what you'll see is each side will present a caricature of the issues. There won't be an attempt to mediate these issues, many of which can be mediated. There, there'll be an attempt to raise money on them and make them worse than they have to be. Well, Josh, I did see this poll. NPR Ipsos did a poll this week. Um, Two-thirds of Americans oppose allowing transgender women and girls to compete on teams that align with their gender identity. Only 24% of Americans support it. Um, so while it's a partisan issue, there is some broad consensus around some of this, isn't there? I think the political rule of thumb when it comes to transgender issues, based on all the polling, all the focus groups I've reported on, is that most Americans are in favor of tolerance and rights for everyone, especially minority group. That's a very clear principle. But they blanch when the rights of a small number of Americans infringe on the rights of, of a whole lot of others. And on this whole transgender debate, Carl laid out a few notable examples. But, you know, whether it's a very age inappropriate gender identity curriculum being taught to elementary school students, uh, whether it's transgender boys playing on girls sports teams, whether it's, you know, medical procedures for, for minors. Uh, in, in this realm. Those are examples where you look at poll after poll after poll and bipartisan. I mean, I, Carl says this is a part of becoming a partisan issue. What I find interesting about this subject, and I've seen this in the schools debate anecdotally from moderate Democrats having some concerns about the excesses of the activists on the transgender uh, front. But, you know, you see in the polls that you actually have a, a bipartisan majority of Americans having concerns about the excesses, the, the the issues where it's not just about rights, but it's, but it's where rights infringe on other Americans' rights as well. And there's a certain absolutism in, in this activist movement um, that has really created a backlash. And, and that's what's made this a political hot potato. So, you know, right now, as Carl laid out, you see this 
dynamic where red states are pass, passing legislation that restrict rights and, and, and restrict curriculums and uh, are, are targeting, you know, the transgender movement uh, writ large. Uh, but you have blue states going the other direction and, and trying to um, make things more permissive and liberal. Um, I think there's going to be some political middle ground that's eventually going to have to be reached on this front because uh, Wall Street Journal did a poll this uh, month showing that only, I think, 18% of Americans do, were comfortable using sort of these they pronouns to refer to, to, to transgender individuals, the, 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 the kind of the new pronoun uh, lingo. Andy, you talked about sort of the sports team issue. That That's a 60, 70% issue for clear majority of Americans. So, you know, even though this is becoming a partisan issue, I do think it's going to be an example of something that ends up benefiting Republicans. You, you saw this with DeSantis winning by 19 points in Florida, running on uh, some of these these issues, targeting the excesses of the of the activism among transgender activists. You see this in you saw it in Virginia, uh, Glenn Youngkin's campaign in a blue state where he also touched upon some of the excesses. So, look, I think if Republicans play their cards effectively, they can benefit politically because the middle of the country is closer to where the Republican Party is than the Democrats. The risk for Republicans, though, is, in, is when they make it seem like this is the only issue out there. Economic issues, putting food on your table, you know, making making a living effectively. When, when you start talking more about transgender individuals on sports teams, you don't talk about a lot of the other issues like inflation, the economy, crime, and so on. That's where Republicans get in trouble because they ultimately need to realize there are a lot of other issues out there that concern Americans as well. Well, Carl, what sort of lays over this, at least the debate at the moment, is this horrible shooting down in Nashville and the transgender uh, shooter. Um, I guess we know that about her now, although there is still some debate over it, I guess. But how do you view that in, in terms of the press coverage, especially? It did seem to Josh's point that both sides have sort of latched onto this as a way to sort of make their argument for these larger issues about transgenderism. Well, Andy, you know, the, the media has taken side. Then when I say it's a partisan issue, so the, the sad part about the modern press is that means that the big newspapers and the networks are going to take the Democrat side, which, you know, when newspapers are historically low level of trust, you, you, you'd hope that they'd think about it. But the Washington Post uh, front page on Thursday morning was we asked people why they bought AR-15s. You can't believe why do people even want these guns, you know, like as though the gun is the story here in, in Nashville. And then below that was a Republicans pounce story, you know, Republicans demagoguing on this shooter, but nothing about the shooter. And the Nashville police said that the, the shooter, Audrey Hale, who liked to be called Aiden Hale, had left a manifesto, but they haven't told us what's in it. And I know from the Nashville police exactly how many minutes they took to get there. I know from the Nashville police, I've seen pictures of her videos being shot. I've learned all these things about what her mother thought and where she got the guns and all, but not why she did it. And they know. And Americans are getting tired of being presented a narrative instead of the facts by the press. And and in this case, the narrative, if she's going to say, I went there to kill Christian children, I, I don't know what the manifesto said, but I know that it hasn't been released. I know that they've, and they've said they're not going to release it. And the trans activist community have said they don't want it released. Now we're going to fight over that. Twitter banned the usual suspects, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and her ilk um, from pointing out that a small segment of the trans activist community had said that the 
the Friday day of trans vindication was going to be the day of trans vengeance. And, you know, was she motivated by that? Was the shooter motivated in Nashville by this? So it's already entered this area where you're forbidden to say certain things. The American people have had enough. They've had enough of censorship. They've had enough of journalism by narrative. What are the facts here? And they want to know this. So yeah, that's what overlays this. Now, on the other side, the extreme right-wing press, uh, Breitbart News, oh, disproportionate number of these shooters are, are transgender people. Well, come on. We don't have to go that far. We know most mass murders are heterosexual people, misfits, mentally ill, whatever. Well, 98% are men. We know that. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and, and look, and, you know, in terms of whether it's a hate crime, well, they're all hate crimes. You go shoot people you don't know, that's by de- almost by definition a hate crime. They want to say, are you, were you mad at this protected group or that group? Well, it doesn't matter what group you're mad at. To say, as some of the right-wingers have said, that you know these people are given drugs, it makes them angry. I, come on. We, we don't need to go there either. We need to have this you know, kind of rational discussion, stick to the facts. Remember, that used to be what we did in the internal. <laughs> Josh, what do you think? Well, you know, the one common factor in a lot of these these mass murderers, not not all of them, but but many of them is just mental disturbance. And I hear so much we, we speaking of narrative journalism, we hear narrative politics where, you know, the left will say gun control, gun control, ban assault weapons and 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 so on and so on. The right is in this case certainly targeting the gender identity of, of the killer, but look, there there is a commonality uh, through a lot of these mass murderers and that's that's like a serious in serious indications of mental disturbances. And uh, well, I think that's, I think we will learn that from, from, from the manifesto and some of the reporting I've seen indicates that for, for this individual, like it used to be, see, if you see something, say something, right. That was sort of the, if someone's acting a little weird, if they're, if they're acting unusual, it used to be common sense to report them to a person of authority. No, no. You see something, somebody's weird. Sell right. them an now, now it's either sell them a gun or you don't, now it's sell them a gun and don't say anything because it's, you'll, 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 you know, be canceled if you say something inappropriate. And I think we have to kind of remember that like common sense, you should use your common sense. If someone's acting strangely, if they're writing things that are nutty, um, if they're making threats, don't sell them a gun and report them to a, a, an authority figure. I, I do sense that there may have been in this instance, a case where people didn't want to say something because of identity politics. And uh, we have a God awful tragedy that, that, that makes me sick to my stomach uh, reading the news every day. Well, let's, let's move on. Let's talk about the polls. Uh, we've got this Fox news poll came out Wednesday, Josh, I want to ask you about this. It showed that Trump had doubled his leads. It's February. It's up by 30 points over Ron DeSantis. So the numbers are something like 54%, 24%. Uh, last month he was up by only 15 points. So this is a big jump in the national polls, at least according to Fox. But Josh, you reported um, this week on these state polls uh, that showed DeSantis leading Trump by eight points uh, in Iowa and tied with Trump in New Hampshire. Uh, we also had this poll, which just came out in Georgia. Now it was done by a, a super PAC that's backs DeSantis, but it did show DeSantis was up in Georgia by, I think, 10 points as well. So parse that for us. I mean, what is, what's the importance of it being different at the state level? And is it different at the state level? Are these polls accurate? Well, look, all politics is still a little bit local, and there's certain dynamics in individual states that can play to different candidates' advantage. And in the case of the Iowa poll, that, that, that's the poll that showed uh, DeSantis tied in a crowded field and up substantially uh, head-to-head against Trump. You know, Iowa was not a favorable state for Donald Trump in the 2016 caucuses. 
it has a sizable evangelical uh, electorate. R- Donald Trump, the one thing he's done that I, I don't think has been uh, well, he's done many things since since leaving the presidency that has not been helpful to his political future. But you know, he's raised some real questions about the political uh, uh, judiciousness of, of of sticking to the pro life line uh, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, and uh, he's lost uh, at least in elite circles, lost some support um, among devoted evangelical uh, conservatives. And I think that's what you're seeing. I think I- I- Iowa is, is a much more favorable state for someone like Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis may have an opportunity to run to Trump's right on social issues, on abortion, on cultural issues, uh, just like Ted Cruz did uh, and won uh, Iowa um, in 2016. And you mentioned, uh, Andy, the, the Georgia poll that, that came out. Now, granted, it was from a uh, an organization, a super PAC affiliated with Ron DeSantis, but it's a, s- a solid pollster. Tony Fabrizio put out the poll. And look, Georgia is one of the, Georgia is the kryptonite for Donald Trump. He, it's the one state in last year's uh, primaries where uh, the traditional Republican slate drummed Trump's preferred picks. Governor Kemp, Secretary of State Raffensperger, pretty much down the line, there were routes uh, against the Trump endorsed candidates. And that was an outlier compared to most of the other states in the country. So I do think it's important to know that there's some interesting state by state dynamics that could play to someone like DeSantis's advantage. I think the bigger picture though, is that even in these state by state polls, uh, the trend lines have been in Trump's direction. So, I mean, a few months ago, I probably DeSantis would have been leading in all of these States. Now, now they're much closer. And when you look at the Fox poll, Trump over 50% nationally and leading DeSantis by uh, about 30 points. Trump has really gained energy because of these legal cases against him. And he's taken advantage of the Republican electorate's sense of grievance that there's an injustice being performed against him. And, uh, you know, DeSantis has run a very listless pseudo campaign, this book tour. <laughs> he's, gotten, he's gotten in trouble when he's spoken about Ukraine he had to backtrack his remarks from Tucker to, to Piers Morgan. Uh, he has not responded. I've, I've been sort of struck that his campaign has not been nimble in responding to these attacks, these relentless attacks that Trump has has thrown at him. So, I mean, I think it's a combination that Trump has sort of gotten his camp, campaign back on track. And DeSantis, even though he hasn't announced a campaign yet, is looking not ready for prime time. Um, Andy, you're almost my age, so you'll remember this. Uh, Josh is young. We're, I'm going to mention some uh, races that occurred before he was born and some when he was in grade, grade school. And, you know, we're still, it's not even the election year yet, right? So we're, we're not only a year out, we're, we're a year out from the primaries. Um, at this point in the cycle in 1972, uh, Ed Muskie was the front runner on the Democratic side. Four years later on the Democratic side, it was Hubert Humphrey. Uh, in 2000, in 1992, it was Jerry Brown, uh, not Bill Clinton. In 2004, Four was Howard Dean was had was not only leading in the polls but leading in fundraising right up until the turn of the, until until election year January of two thousand four uh, in two thousand seven at this point in the cycle two thousand eight presidential election uh, any of you remember who the Republican front runner was two thousand seven what was it Giuliani Rudy Giuliani none of those men were even nominated let alone elected president so it, I, I, that's my way of saying it's early now. Look, Trump's been president, so it's not quite the same, right? He's the 800-pound gorilla. Someone has to slay him. But these people who are also Rands now, and 
barely a blip. Gavin Newsom on the Democratic side doesn't doesn't poll well. Nikki Haley on the Republican side, but but it's not unheard of that somebody like that comes out of, seemingly out of nowhere and is the nominee. So we should remember our history that they're not they're not necessarily just positive. Well, that's true, but I do think that you pointed out the big difference is that this time Trump has already been the president of the United States. He's about a hundred percent name recognition. Yeah, and by the way, the, the numbers are coming after Trump holds a rally in Waco, Texas, where he salutes the rioters in jail who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, and that's only enhanced his popularity. So, Josh, I want to ask you about that. Was he doing that because he expects to be sharing a cell with one of them and he wants to be well, on look, good Well, look, Carl, side? I was watching March Madness, and I had the Trump rally on in the background to make to track to see if he said anything newsworthy and then i you know that was the first you know, that was the first thing you see uh, in waco um last saturday so look it, this this is the weird thing for for people who analyze and write about politics like us you know the things that you normally do that would hurt you politically even within a primary are actually helping uh, or not hurting certainly not hurting trump and that's what makes i think that's what's changed a lot of the conventional wisdom and that what that's what makes it a little bit different from a lot of the past uh, elections that you were talking about you know the, there's something about the the rules of political gravity when it comes to Donald Trump that the things that you would think would make him weaker only make him stronger with the republican base and and I can tell you that's really kind of messed with the DeSantis campaign's head because I think they assumed he would be coming back to earth on his own and instead you're seeing numbers that are that are looking formidable for the former president well, Josh, I wanted to ask you about something else that you wrote about, which was Chris Christie, who came out and said that uh, he would not support Donald Trump if he was the Republican nominee. Pretty interesting thing. I mean, Christie was, of course, an early backer of Trump, and they've gone their separate ways. But does that have any political resonance, do you think? Well, look, uh, Chris Christie, I think, wants to run for president. And I think uh, he's, he's already preparing some of his lines uh, at that first debate in August and, and how he's going to prosecute the case against Trump. And he is, you know, he is a former U.S. attorney. And I think he wants to kind of redeem himself from 2016. He went after Rubio and, and helped Trump win the nomination, later endorsed, became one of the first Republicans to endorse Trump. Uh, this time around, I would I would expect him to get in the race and, and I would expect him to be the one Republican not afraid to just hit Trump where it hurts. I, I call, I mean, I, I think he's going to play the role of designated hitter. It's opening, opening week in baseball. Uh, you know, tr- Christie does not have a, a great chance of winning the nomination. He's, you know, he ran before, you know, we, we know his weaknesses politically, but he is a very strong political performer. He's a prosecutor. Uh, he had some strong moments in the 2016 campaign and no one else seems to want to actually frontally attack Donald Trump. So if I'm Ron DeSantis, if I'm Mike Pence, if I'm Nikki Haley, I welcome Chris Christie into the race because I think he has the the balls, frankly, to do what none of none of them have really been willing to do so far. Um, and he could play a constructive constructive role in them, the party. That I'll tell you, Josh, it's about seven years too late <laughs> if you ask me. I mean, this guy, come on, he. He ran. He ran when Trump was nominated, as you pointed out, and he went out. He spent all of his time and money attacking Marco Rubio, and the the Republicans had a nominee. They were, you know, they mainstream Republicans couldn't wait for this guy to be the nominee. Rubio, I'm talking about. Uh, they thought he'd carry 40 states against Hillary Clinton, and they'd realign themselves demographically, and it would have been a great this, this Hispanic candidate. But first, Jeb Bush, who'd been his 
his mentor in Tallahassee, uh, the, the, the super PAC working for Jim spent $100 million attacking Marco Rubio in Iowa and New Hampshire and other places, but those two. And then Chris Christie went after him. And Christie's supposed to be, he's in the angry lane with Trump. He's the guy who barks and hates political correctness and will say anything. He should have run against Trump then. And these guys should have left Rubio alone. And then if Christie, you know, who knows what would happen. This is revisionist history of a high order, but go ahead. Yeah. I'll, well, it's not, it's not revisionist history. It's alternate history. It's, it's alternative reality history. It's yeah. It's what should have happened at the time. So now when he doesn't have office, he doesn't have constituency, he doesn't have a fundraising opportunity. Now he's going to attack Trump. Oh, great. Yeah. That's really, that's smart. Well, he should have done it before. I, I don't disagree with one word you said, Carl, but I do think that, um, look, it, it, politics makes for strange bedfellows. I didn't expect Chris. I mean, I didn't, look, the, the 2016 election, no one wanted to attack. I mean, that was the same dynamic where no one wanted to go after Trump. They thought they were going to be the last guy standing against him. And they all acted in very self-interested ways that were not uh, for the good of the party and for the good of, of, of Trump ended up winning. So I guess maybe in, the, in that election, it was, it ended up working out, but it certainly, um, a lot of them have regrets from that period of time. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he, he's got a do over. He, he's going to have to answer for his past support of Trump. Look, Trump gave him, uh, you know, he almost, he, he was seriously ill after, you know, when he was helping Trump out with the bait prep and got COVID, uh, from someone in the room, I think probably the former president. So um, he has at least he has a good story. I mean, he has a reason to be a little bit upset uh, for his help that he gave to the former president. Carl's right. The election's a long way away. But um, there is an election that's right around the corner, and that's the mayor's race in Chicago. Uh, it's next Tuesday. Pitts uh, former Chicago public school CEO Paul Vallis against Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Uh, the race is tightening, from what I understand. Both candidates are getting some interesting endorsements. Johnson will appear this weekend with Bernie Sanders. Vallis has picked up uh, Senator Durbin's support. So, Josh, you've been following this. Well, this is a race that has two uh, major dynamics. One is the issue of crime. Uh, WGN did a poll. I'm, I I follow these mayor's races where crime is a big issue. Over half of Chicagoans said crime is the top issue. It, it's dominating uh, the race in among every every constituency. And it's what's given someone like Paul Vallis, a moderate reformer uh, who has a long record in government of, of, of turning around public school systems, of, of working in, in a lot of leading uh, Democratic administrations, I think Governor Quinn's uh, running mate. Uh, you know, he, it's given him a, a, an advantage. Now, the other factor in this race is the issue of identity and um, the African-American vote, which is substantial in, in Chicago, mostly voted for Lori Lightfoot, the ousted uh, Chicago mayor in the first round of balloting. And the big question is, do they vote based on identity lines or do they vote based on the issue that they care about the most, which is crime? I've talked to some Chicago political uh, analysts who think that, Vallis needs about a quarter of the African-American vote uh, to win this election. And if you look at the polling, he's right about at that point. Um, so that is going to be the big the big question in the south side, the west side of Chicago. Uh, the African-American voters who are just worried sick about rising crime, just record levels of crime in their neighborhoods, murders, homicides, violence. Uh, do they but do they vote for the issue or do they vote for sort of the the identity they play identity card. Well, do they vote for a, do they vote for a guy who's the same race as them, who was marching 
to defund the police, not, you know, as recently as two years ago. Right. Right. I, I guess we should point out, I don't know if we've made it made it clear, but Paul Vallis is white and Brandon Johnson is black. But go ahead. Well, Brandon Johnson sure made it clear, Andy. He accused Paul Vallis in their debate of being dismissive of a black man. He didn't say why he said that, but <laughs> he just said it. He's trying to get the African-American community there who voted for Lori Lightfoot to vote for him. And, and that's how he thinks the best way to go about it. He's also, uh, to Josh's point, uh, making sure he doesn't go near that defund the police rhetoric. Uh, they, they brought that up and he's looked around the room. Who, who me? I wasn't me. So that's the two things he's doing, ignoring what he said before. And he, he hasn't embraced the cops exactly, but, but he's, he's not, he's not going there. He's, he's, he's played the race card. So we'll see how it works. One interesting thing about, about this contest is that even as Vallis has been tagged as something of a pseudo Republican by Johnson, uh, you mentioned Andy, Dick Durbin endorsed Vallis, a lot of Obama world alums like David Axelrod, um, very pro Vallis. Um, so there, there are interesting dynamics in, in this race. It does feel like your kind of classic progressive activists versus kind of traditional Democrat matchup. And look, uh, it would be a powerful, powerful message for moderates looking to get tougher on crime if someone like Vallis, who frankly is not the strongest political candidate, has I think he finished ninth place. He ran for mayor four years ago, finished in ninth place. If he actually wins uh, and becomes mayor at age 69, it's a sign of how powerful that crime issue is across the country. Josh, do we know anything about turnout at this point? And does does that matter? Because that that would seem to me that that if turnout is up, that might favor uh, uh, Johnson, but maybe not necessarily. Yeah, turnout was pretty low uh, historically in the in the first round of, of balloting. One one X factor is the Hispanic uh, the engagement of the Hispanic uh, community, which makes up a lot of the population. Doesn't typically show up to to vote. Uh, their candidate did not move on to the runoff. Polls show Vallis doing well uh, in a lot of the Hispanic wards in Chicago, uh, and they're they're also concerned about crime like everyone else is. Uh, but they also have more progressive economic uh, views. So uh, that and, and will they show up and 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 will will they vote? Yeah, you, know, you know, will they will they vote their economy with a pocketbook or will they vote uh, on the crime issue? Well, I assume the teachers are for Brandon Johnson. The teachers union, big time. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah he's. He's but yeah, he's, he's the their Chicago guy. teachers union yeah. candidate. He, in fact, he right. he uh, Lightfoot. You would have thought Lightfoot might have had a chance at, at that endorsement as the incumbent, but they were in for Johnson from the beginning. And Carl, what do you make of this sort of Obama world endorsement for um, a quasi Republican white guy? I mean, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. Look, Paul Vallis, <laughs> he's a liberal Democrat. I mean, by any normal standard. But I I was I was struck by that, and and Josh talked about it. So what does that mean? Because Barack Obama was the was the progressive insurgent. He was the candidate from outside the party. He took the party over from the Clintons, right? Well, but now he's the establishment. Now he's the, he took over the party and, and he made the party in his own image. It's it's what happened with Ronald Reagan. You know, when the revolution succeeds and you govern for eight years, well, then you're the establishment. And I, I was struck by that too. The look, the Obama people are plenty liberal on public policy. But there was always a pragmatic streak um, to that administration. You saw this with Joe Biden. He came out in favor of this, uh, you know, Obama's vice president. He, he came out to this, you know, overruled the D.C. local city council who, for some inexplicable reasons, decided when carjackings are at a historic high level 
they're going to cut the sentences for hijack car hijackings and other things like that. And it was the Republicans on the House committee that oversees the district didn't want this. And the president, Barack Obama's vice president, sided with the Republicans, not with the local with the local progressives. So, I, you know, that shows you this Biden Obama thing. It's pretty liberal. But it's not far left. Well, you know, uh, it would be something of a sister soldier moment if Biden endorsed Dallas like Dick Durbin did. That, that you know, but Biden Biden was a little bit slow on the on the DC crime bill, uh, and it cost him. I mean, I think it'll help him in the long run, but it certainly you know caused a lot of problems. I, I tell you, Josh, I, I don't give advice to politicians, but I would not advise I would not advise the president to get anywhere near that Chicago race because. He, if, his, if he endorsed a candidate and that candidate lost, he looks weak. If he endorsed a candidate and that candidate won, he's going to alienate people in Chicago. He's going to want to help him during the, if there's a primary. He should stay as far away from that as he could. Uh, but the crime issue is the big, one of the biggest vulnerabilities for Democrats. There is a lot of tiptoeing around the issue. Uh, sure, but that. if Alice wins, if Alice and wins, Alice Biden is leading Biden, in the polls. Biden, yeah, but I if think he, Biden if, could probably put him over the top. He, but if he wins, he can invite him to the White House. He can say, I, I was pulling for him all along. Come on, he can do anything he wants. Once the guy wins, he can, shit, he could put him on the ticket. Come on. There was a lot of, I'll just say there was a lot of reporting that if Lightfoot made it to the runoff, Biden was planning to endorse her. I think uh, if, if, if that was the case, then I, if there's an issue that Biden has to worry about in 2024, it's either a recession or a crime, wave, the, the, the continued crime wave across the country. And you saw how quickly... House, House and Senate Democrats ran away from that D.C. crime bill. 81 senators. I mean, it was a remarkable show of bipartisanship. One of the few examples we see in Congress where this progressive uh, movement in the District of Columbia literally scared almost every Democrat, not just on a ballot, but even some of the Democrats in Virginia and, 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 and in, in swing states across the country in siding with the Republican Party. So if I was advising Biden, I would say you don't want to have to be seen as soft on crime if, if the crime rate wave. Uh, continues into 2024. All right, Andy. So let's say you, so you, we'll do a little role playing here. You're the president of the United States. You're Joe Biden. Josh Kroshauer and Carl Cannon are two advisors. I've told him, don't go near, don't irritate, don't, don't piss off the teachers unions. Don't go near that Chicago thing. Josh has said very forcefully, you just heard him. No, we want to be right on the crime issue. It's the only issue that can hurt us. All right, Mr. President, what's your decision? In Chicago. Well, I hate to tell you, Josh, but I'd be firmly in Carl's camp. I, if I were Biden, I would just sit back and let let those two fight. Take credit afterwards. Well, Eric Adams, Biden invited Eric Adams after he won the New York mayoral race to the White House, and you viewed him right. as sort of his Sherpa. You know, you know, I think there's some racial politics that make that different in Chicago. I understand that. But boy, like that, there's a reason he did that then in New York. And there's a real benefit, I think, for being seen as as much more moderate on crime than a lot of the most activist voices within the party. All right. But Josh, you heard the president, what he said. So let's let's leave it there. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll see, Josh. Uh, you may be right. We'll see um, if uh, if Biden comes out with an endorsement between now and Tuesday. We will know. We'll know he's been listening to the podcast. and He listened to you. <laughs> I don't expect it, but that that's not why that's why Clinton was different than Biden. That's why Biden has, has sort of, you know, for better or for worse, not adopted the, the Clintonian playbook on, on that front. Well, Josh, since you've followed this, uh, I think, more closely than Carl and I have. Any predictions? Who do you think will win? I think it's going to be very close. Um, you know, uh, Johnson trailed by, what, double digits in the in the first round. But look, the, the, the a lot of the Lightfoot voters 
are moving more towards Johnson. So I think it's going to be a two or three point race. I, I would bet this is going to, going to go down to the wire. Carl, you care to make a prediction or not? I, I don't know enough to make a prediction. God, an honest man can't have that on a podcast. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys for doing this. Um, Josh <laughs> Crosshour and Carl Cannon. Uh, we're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast. Come back often. You can keep up with uh, what we're up to here at the podcast by signing up for the free RCP Takeaway newsletter from Real Clear Politics. You can also sign up for Carl, Carl Cannon's Morning Note. Uh, it'll come in your inbox magically every day or a couple times a week, I guess. I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.